In this first hour today, the human cost of war with Osmat Khan, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter who has been at the forefront of uncovering the harsh realities of war, more specifically for today's conversation, uh, the U.S.'s counterinsurgency efforts in the 20 years-plus since the 9-11 attacks. Osmat Khan, good to have you on the program. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's my great delight. Glad to have you on. Lots to talk about in this uh, in this first hour. Uh, war is never an easy subject and in a sexy subject. And yet every now and then I want to come back to it because it, it raises questions about the way we are perceived, the way we move, the way we show up in the world as a country. And we oftentimes spend so much time talking about domestic issues that we never focus even for a few minutes on the uh, on the international front, the global front. So I want to do that for the next uh, uh, 55 minutes or so. And I'm glad to glad to have you on. Let me start with a broad question, uh, Osman, and then we'll, we'll work our way through this hour. Um, what, what do you think the U.S. standing is uh, around the globe right now? How, how are we viewed? I, I was just saying to somebody the other day that it's been a while. I've been so busy, you know, working with this radio station. Uh, it's been a while since I've actually left the country uh, for an extended trip. Uh, and I, I've, I'm feeling sort of out of water these days. i got to get out of here this summer and go somewhere because it seems to me that you can't really appreciate America and, for that matter, even critique America uh, unless you get on the outside sometimes and look back at it. Somebody said you can't appreciate the parade uh, if you're on the float. So sometimes you got to get outside of our country to look back on it, to critique it, and, and for that matter, again, to appreciate it for what it does do well and what it does get right. Uh, but you can't do that if you stay on the inside all the time. So uh, outside of our borders, what would you say about the way the U.S. is perceived internationally uh, at this present moment? Well, first, just let me say thank you for highlighting this issue. I feel so often that many don't talk about war or America's standing in the world and how that's changing because of its conflicts abroad. So I really appreciate you spotlighting this for your audience. But in terms of globally, how the United States is seen, it really depends on where you are, where the, what involvement the United States has had in that region and its affairs, obviously, in Latin America, U.S. intervention over many decades has radically impact po- impacted populations' views, obviously in the Middle East, in places like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. There are incredible understandings of what the U.S. military is capable of and what it is capable of doing in terms of, you know, radically transforming the makeup uh and social fabric of a country. Uh, and then, in, of course, in places like Russia or Ukraine, there are, you know, very clear views about its involvement in the current conflict there. Um, you know, differing views in those two countries, but, um, you know, there's a very overt involvement and understanding of what the United States is doing there. In terms of you know, thinking about American values, you know, it's not lost on me. It was Frederick Douglass, I think, who said, you know, he who is a critic of his country is a lover of his country, is a patriot. This idea that to really care about your nation means that you are often willing to look at its flaws, to examine them, mm-hmm. and to discuss them. And, and you know, when I'm abroad, I often find that I'm very grateful for what I'm able to do. You know, my reporting is incredibly, it has been very, it, it, it interrogates, it's accountability journalism, it's looked at U.S. actions, and it's difficult, I think, for many in the government to accept or to acknowledge 
But at the same time, you know, a lot of that work has rested upon my using laws that we have, like the Freedom of Information Act, to extract important government information. You know, I've obtained thousands of pages of military records um, about, you know, allegations of civilian casualties from our airstrikes abroad. Like, I was able to do that because we have laws on the books, right, that allow me to pursue that. And I go to many countries where that this does not exist. So I'm certainly grateful, um, you know, for the the country that I live in and my ability to do this journalism. But at the same time, I, like so many investigative reporters, uh, you know, care about accountability and care about really seeking truth in terms of what what the U.S. military is doing mm-hmm. abroad and the impact it's having in those countries because they can be devastating. Yeah. That's a mouthful. There's a lot to interrogate. I'm glad we got an hour to do that. Um, before we move forward, let me just ask one quick question, and then we'll uh, we'll mm-hmm. work our way through the rest of this hour. I'm I'm struck by your by your comment about uh, the role that the U.S. Uh, plays, oftentimes or at least attempts to play, in transforming countries, um, uh, in uh, reworking, if you will, the social fabric of countries. I'm not naive in asking this. Are there still places around the globe in real time where you think the U.S. is uh, about the business, whether we should be or not, of trying to transform countries? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can see this across the board and it, you know, people have different perspectives on whether that's a good thing and, you know, what role the United States should play in the world. Um, But just speaking to where, you know, the countries I know best, you know, where I've done most of my reporting on the ground. So let's look at Iraq and Afghanistan. In both of these countries, the United States still has, uh, you know, uh, or has had a great deal of involvement and work by the U.S. Agency for International Development, mm-hmm. USAID, mm-hmm. which has had a slew of programs. Similarly, um, the State Department has done work in these countries, and, you know, there are others through whom we work. Um, in some of these places, the CIA, it's not just the military, the CIA partners with others to do particular kinds of work on the ground to to remake certain places and areas. And to support particular groups, um, this is this is the case. It, we may have changed our footprint on the ground, right? We're not in the era of sending 100,000 U.S. troops to a country um, in a surge. That isn't what we're doing. But we have radically transformed what people might call war by other means, um, and that can be remote war- warfare, so drone strikes. That can be, um, you know, a lot of... Uh, uh, foreign aid and attempts to influence culture, media, and, you know, throughout these countries, we often try to support civil society. And sometimes those civil society groups, um, you know, can can be pushing programs that might be different from what the local population, um, that might be organic there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily, I think there's debate over, you know, what role the United States should play, but there have been you know, some of these efforts have resulted in, you know, the kind of decimation of the social fabric of a country. And in a place like Iraq, where the U.S. invasion in 2003 elicited, you know, incredible sectarian divisions, you know, whether it's intentional or not, you see it spur cycles of violence that endure today, cycles of violence that helped lead to the rise of ISIS, a group that we then had to go back to war in Iraq to defeat. And then those kinds of divisions continue to exist in the social fabric of Iraq today when, you know, we just 
hit the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion yep. in March of this year. And there is such an incredible transformation of the social fabric of that country that has resulted from our work there. That's one of the reasons why I wanted you uh, on today, one of the primary reasons, because we have, uh, again, just crossed the 20th anniversary of that invasion. Uh, and it's worth uh, considering what uh, we have uh, done or not done, accomplished or not accomplished, as it were, over these 20 years. Uh, we're talking to Osman Khan, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter at the forefront of uncovering all kinds of harsh realities about war. When we come forward, we'll talk about our increasing reliance on drone strikes. I've been critical of this for, for many years, um, and the number of drone strikes increased dramatically, uh, believe it or not, during the Obama era. Uh, and um, I'm not sure that we've uh, reduced that number as yet, but we want to talk about uh, our increased reliance on drone strikes, um, young, young men and women. Um, you know, young, sitting somewhere in Nevada with a joystick dropping bombs literally around the world, oftentimes killing innocent women and children. What does that do to our standing uh, around the globe? We'll talk about accountability journalism. I love the phrase that uh, Osmond used a moment ago. Uh, we'll unpack that. Uh, we'll talk more about the role that we should play in the world. The world is changing, it has changed dramatically uh, since the Cold War. And I am curious as to what she thinks our role, um, the best role, uh, that we could play in the in the world today. I hear those voices all the time that we cannot be the world's police. Indeed, we cannot. But what is the proper role for America to play on the global stage? I've got a lot to talk to, a lot to talk about, rather, in this hour with Osman Khan, who will continue our dialogue with in a moment when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Yes, indeed, with our guest, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter Osman Khan. Uh, and who we're delighted to have on uh, in this hour. Uh, let me start with this. You've said a lot already in this conversation that I want to, uh, again, unpack as we move through this hour. Uh, and by the way, I love the Frederick Douglass quote you used earlier. I've used that quote many times. Um, and uh, one of the uh, uh, more brilliant things that Douglass said, of course, everything Douglass said was pretty brilliant. Uh, but that line... I uh, think, just to yeah. correct myself, sure. I think I may have slightly gotten it wrong. He said, he is a lover of his country who rebukes and does not excuse its sin. That's exactly right. I know the quote you're referencing. It's, it's, it's a great quote. Um, so you got to be willing to rebuke your country uh, and uh, and not excuse its sins when it is wrong. Uh, and, and it's a great quote because, you know, we're, we're talking to a, a significantly sizable African-American audience uh, on this program. Uh, and I think oftentimes we, when we quote Douglas, we love to say we love the quote power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. We never get around to this particular Douglas quote about uh, about critiquing your country on the international front, on the world stage, on the global stage. And so um, uh, if Douglas is good for for for, for quotes about uh, domestic issues, he's good enough for quotes about international issues as well. Some 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 I'm <laughs> glad you yeah, I'm glad you raised that. So let so let me let me let me go big then. Um, so what? What what role? And this is a, this is a, a broad question, and I know there's not a simple answer to it. But at, at the moment, I asked you earlier the way we are seen around the globe. Let me ask a different question: um, What role, largely, do you see us playing on the global stage right now? It's a great question, and I should say that as an investigative journalist, the the things I'm most targeted towards myself personally are related to transparency, honest honesty, accountability for the claims we make, and I often interrogate those and look to see how those impact understandings of what role the United States should play. And so, you know, rather than giving you a personal opinion, I think it might be more helpful if I kind of lay out some of the arguments. And I think that a lot of this is rooted historically in positive roles or what's perceived to be positive roles the United States can play as a peacemaker in the world. So the 1978 Camp Davis Accords or the... um, 
you know, Oslo Accords, you know, times in which the United States has been involved in peacemaking, and that has shaped many views of what the United States is capable of doing. But we've also seen, you know, this is not as simple as a responsibility to protect, as some call it, or, uh, you know, an intervention for the sake of peace. You know, we've seen invasions that have really hurt America's credibility in the world. Mm. So the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan did that. The images that came from Abu Ghraib um, and Guantanamo radically transformed how people saw the United States in the world. It, For many, it diminished its standing in the world. It's hurt its credibility, and it put this perception of America as peacemaker, it, put, it really questioned that. And I think there has been, among some, a shift in really questioning what role the United States ought to play in the world. And funnily enough, I think after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, as Americans were playing, I'm sorry, as Americans were paying for those wars, not just with their taxpayer dollars, but with their lives, you saw some anti-war movements, and you saw a public that was really wary of continuing in that, asking, well, what are we really getting for this? Like, what are we getting from, you know, the 2,000-plus Americans killed in the war in Afghanistan or the, the others killed in Iraq? Like, what are we getting for that? And so what came out of that actually was like a shift. And it wasn't just like the United States, it wasn't that you know, the U.S. will no longer play a role in the world. It was more that it became almost contracted um, in a sense where we diminished our footprint, our boots on the ground, right? Where under the Obama administration, you know, amidst this wary public that's asking questions about what we're getting, you know, questions because they're losing lives, mm -hmm. we started to shift towards working with foreign partners, supporting them with airstrikes. Sometimes those are drones, but sometimes those are like E-52 bombers and like traditional aircraft that are quite large um, and can cause very devastating damage or be very effective um, depending on the circumstances. And we essentially made it so that fewer Americans are dying in our wars, which mm -hmm. is a very good thing. But it also means that most Americans are not familiar with the fact that our wars are even happening, right? That we continued we dropped more bombs in Afghanistan in 2019 than any previous year of the war in Afghanistan. But that year, that war had the least amount of TV news coverage than it did in any previous year of the war. Mm. And I think that this kind of remote approach says, yes, it's, we're losing fewer lives, which is a very good thing, but it also means it's not on the American public's radars. They're not necessarily feeling the cost. It's not impacting as many households across the country. And as a result, it means a lot can go unchecked. And we continue to operate abroad and carry out conflicts, and we're expanding the war in Somalia and other countries, even as we've drawn down the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Since you raised it, uh, I raised it as well, but I want to come back to it to have you put a final point mm -hmm. on it. Uh, let me just ask point blank um, and directly um, what you make of our increased reliance on, as I would call it, war by joystick, dropping these drones? Mm. Yeah, the biggest is that it's shifted the human costs of war to foreign populations. So those who are paying the human costs tend to be our partners. So, for example, the Iraqi forces we work with, or the, you know, it was the 
Afghan National Army that we worked with, or it's oftentimes foreign civilians um, who are paying those human costs, right? These are people who are caught in these conflicts with the United States, with its massive air power, right? And the, you know, the people are caught between them and in Afghanistan, for example, the Taliban, which does not have air power like that at all, not even remotely, right? They fought often with guerrilla tactics and embedding in local communities. And so civilians found themselves caught in these conflicts, and they're the ones often paying the human cost. That's, you know, one very big and direct impact. The other is that it means a public that is less familiar with what's happening, um, less aware of the wars, in, you know, being waged in their names, as I previously talked about. But it also means that there are, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who are involved in these wars. Some of them are not just, they're not the people pushing the button, but they're watching the video feeds and calling out objects and identifying threats. And, you know, we have tons of people doing this on a day-to-day basis at different bases across the United States. Mm. And some of them that I've spoken to, they tell me things like, oh, you know, I was watching this thing this one day and this terrible thing happened. And I was like, where was this place that you were watching? And they're like, I I don't know. It was some country in Africa. Uh, Or, you know, sometimes people don't, like, it, it is... You know, they'll go out, they'll go to the water cooler, they'll step back into their strike cell um, or the formation that they're sitting in, and they'll go and they'll look on this map and have very little understanding of where they are and what they're doing, and they're so removed from it. And I think that it, you know, as my colleagues at the Times have written about, it can have impacts on their, you know, their mental health and their own feelings of moral injury, right, mm-hmm. this idea that... um you know, they're, they may be doing things that can feel compromising to their own values, and that can take a cost on them. But it also means that when you have such asymmetry, right, where somebody can do this and not necessarily feel a risk, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. to themselves, that that asymmetry can lead to easy employment and use of this without, with very little public debate controversy or deep thinking about those actions mm. no it's it's a it's a powerful point uh and it's why i wanted to, to to take your temperature on the on the use of these drone strikes because to your point um the less we are invested in this and the fewer uh american servicemen and women that we lose which is a good thing um the the, the more disconnected we become from the tactics that we engage. Let me ask you this question right quick. i got about 90 seconds, mm-hmm. and we'll continue on the other side. Um, I think Americans are fatigued about a number of things, and one of the things I think we're fatigued about uh, about uh, is uh, is anti-war protests. What's your take on that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that many Americans are focused on more domestic issues, things that racial injustice, mm-hmm. understandably. There are, they're, they're able to be involved in those protests. But again, unless they're feeling the costs personally of some of these things, you're less likely to see those broad actions yeah. that we did see, you know, obviously most notably in Vietnam, but when there was a draft, right? Um, but we still saw vestiges of and, and, you know, active movements during the wars in the aughts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We're talking in this hour with uh, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter Osman Khan. Uh, 20 years after our invasion of Iraq and uh, trying to get a sense of what these uh, last two decades have meant or not when we come forward in KBLA Talk 1580. We continue our conversation now with Osman Khan, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. 
who joins us in this hour. Uh, just here's, a, here's an interesting factoid. Um, I, I, I find it interesting uh, for a variety of reasons, and this is stuff that I you know, read fairly frequently. Maybe you don't, and because you may not, I want to bring it to your attention. Uh, in case you didn't know, defense spending in this country accounts for 12% of all federal spending and nearly half of all discretionary spending. Let me repeat that. Uh, our defense budget accounts for 12% of all federal spending. That's a big chunk of the budget. And nearly half of all discretionary spending. Let me give you some numbers. The U.S. had by far the largest military budget in 2021 at $767 billion. $767 billion in military spending in 2021. By comparison, China, the world's other superpower, $270 billion. That ain't, that ain't peanuts, but we dwarf what China is spending at $270 billion, uh, China's outlay, ours, $767 billion. Other countries uh, have more modest outlays, ranging from Saudi Arabia at $53 billion to India at $73 billion. That's a whole lot of money, $767 billion of your tax dollars going specifically and uh, exclusively to military spending. What do you make of that, Osmat Khan? The numbers are staggering. And, and one thing I would say is that, it's, you know, there's a lot of controversy around the U.S. military's ability to even track its spending or to pass audits and and that kind of thing. But um, one thing I would also point out is that it's not just our tax dollars. For some of these wars, we have borrowed. Um, we've increased our debt. Our children will be still paying for these wars, and, and that's that's worth knowing as well. And, you know, we maintain bases around the world. Uh, we position ourselves in places where we're not actively at conflict, and, and that also is a major cost. Yeah. Um, there's so much that happens um, you know, through this military system, and we pay for it, but so will our children, and, and that's worth knowing as well. Yeah. Um, you used the phrase proxy war earlier. I want to come back to that. What's your read on this proxy war that we are presently engaged in with Russia? So I think there is um, incredible reporting by colleagues of mine who are on the ground in Ukraine. Um, so many journalists are working really hard to cover this conflict and to bring the truth to light. And I've had colleagues who've exposed incredible war crimes in cities like Bucha, in places like Bucha, where they've essentially been able to trace a military unit, a Russian military unit involved on the ground where many civilians were massacred. And the United States' role in that conflict is, you know, it's not, um, it's not the most direct participant it could be in that conflict, right? You hear a lot of pleas from Ukrainians for more support, more direct involvement. And at the same time, it's not that the United States is not at all involved. We're in this position where we are adding to the, the cost that you just mentioned by our sale of of arms, our support for some of these um, some of these groups, the, the different kinds of aid that we're providing, and I think that it's interesting to see how that's playing out 
among Americans and how they kind of perceive this war. I think that for so many, I think it's reminiscent. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is reminiscent um, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And so it's very interesting to see the lessons of that, um, you know, kind of come home many years later for many Americans. You mentioned earlier accountability journalism. I love that phrase. Um, you refer to yourself as mm-hmm. an accountability journalist. Uh, and I'm curious as to your take on the role of the media in covering or mm-hmm. not covering, as it as it were, uh, the excursions that we're engaged in, even right now around the globe. Great question. I just would like to talk a little bit about some of my work because I think that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so in early 2016... As I'm watching the United States war against ISIS take place, tens of thousands of airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, an effort to try to rid ISIS from these areas, I'm seeing claims that went unchecked. So, for example, I remember in early April 2016, a front-page newspaper, there's a claim that the U.S. airstrikes have killed 25,000 ISIS fighters. And at the same time, I've been tracking what the United States often boasts about, which is its own accountability, its own transparency, its own efforts to track casualties. And they said, you know, we investigate or assess every claim of a civilian casualty that we get. And they had admitted at that point, at the same time that they were claiming killing 25,000 ISIS fighters, they were claiming only to have killed 21 civilians. Mm. Now, those numbers are just, If you know anything about Mm -hmm. war, that is just so impossible to conceive. And so as a journalist, I'm seeing this reporting, and for many good reasons. Um, You know, it was hard for reporters to get to areas where ISIS operated, largely because ISIS executed journalists. It famously executed American and other Western correspondents on video, right? So a lot of people were not going to these areas that were under active ISIS control, nor should they have been, right? It was a death sentence. But as territory started to open up and was retaken from ISIS, it was really important to me to get on the ground, right, and to find out what impact these tens of thousands of airstrikes were having. And so, you know, I set out to do a ground sample, and I worked with a sociologist. And um, just to give you an understanding, if you analyze, like I did, American claims, the number of airstrikes that had conducted, the number of civilian casualties that admitted, you know, its incident rate would be less than 1%. It was 0.06% at the time, which is, you know, a, really, it's a, it yielded many claims of incredible precision mm-hmm. warfare, a lot of claims by the U.S. military and American officials that this was unprecedented in human history. And so on the ground, in this sample that we did in Iraq, for example, it was a sample of 103 airstrikes in three clusters in northern Iraq, we found, and we believe this to be an undercount for a number of reasons, um, given how we, our methodology and who we counted and how we did this counting, rather than 0.06%, right, or what the U.S. claimed, which is like one in every 154 strikes, if I'm remembering correctly, is what they were claiming resulted in this civilian death. We found that one in five coalition airstrikes was resulting in a civilian death. That's not two or three mm-hmm. times higher than what the U.S. government was claiming, that was 31 times higher. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge difference. And so the American public was being wildly misinformed about the human costs 
of its wars. And I went on to continue to investigate that over the course of five years. I, I sued the U.S. military. You know, it says, right, it's claiming we assess all of these allegations of civilian casualties. And I've been tracking all of these assessments they say they've done, right? And I essentially sued the Department of Defense and U.S. Central Command to get these records, right, and obtained thousands of these records. In not one of them, was there ever a finding of wrongdoing or disciplinary action for anyone involved, mm. right? The overwhelming majority of these allegations were rejected, you know, but as I would find, the number one reason for rejecting them was that they had no uh, evidence of an airstrike in, the, in that location on that date, even though their logs, I found, were incorrect. Like, they were not accurately logging every airstrike they did when they would check those particular logs for whether a claim was accurate. So, so, there, so, um, so there's no account- found- so there's no accountability in for you for these officials. There was, yeah, we we called it. If you if you read the New York Times reporting about this, this is the civilian casualty files. You know, we described it as a, a system of impunity where mm-hmm. there was constant, there were intelligence failures and very little effort to study or learn lessons from them. Almost no ground investigations. Only like once did they visit the site of one of these airstrikes, and in another did they interview survivors, yeah. right? In these um, allegations, you know, and this is something I do repeatedly. So I would compare what their intelligence or what their assessments of what had happened were with what I found on the ground, and they were radically different. And over and over again, they have these recurring patterns of failure, and yet, they're not studying them to find these problems and to study them systematically or to go on the ground and see what they might be missing so that they can improve, but truly improve like they claim to do, yeah. how they do this war. And so it is a huge problem of accountability. That's what I found. Yeah. And it was, you know, incredibly disturbing, as I think it should be for any member of the American public to, to think about. Yeah, that's an understatement. Uh, when we come forward... Um, I want to talk to Osman Khan about the future of U.S. foreign policy. I asked earlier what, um, uh, how she sees our standing or lack thereof on the global stage these days. I want to talk more directly and expressly about the future of U.S. foreign policy. And we've not had a chance to talk as yet specifically about the intersection of race and war. We'll do that when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eight. We're talking to Osman Khan in this hour, uh, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter covering issues of war and peace around the globe. Um, and uh, here's some news. Uh, the, the New York Times, uh, who uh, Osman mentioned earlier, is reporting right now. The Kremlin claims that Ukraine launched a drone attack aimed specifically at Russia's Vladimir Putin. The Kremlin claims on uh, earlier today that Ukraine launched a drone strike at Vladimir Putin's residence overnight. Uh, The two drones were disabled by state security services and Mr. Putin was uninjured. The Kremlin said it was not immediately possible to verify the Russian claim. And a Ukrainian official uh, said Kiev had no information about the so-called night of attacks uh, on the Kremlin. In a statement, the Kremlin said it regards these actions as a planned terrorist attack and an attempt on the president and reserve the right to retaliate. So, Osmat Khan, if this story is true. Uh, being reported by the Times uh, that uh, Ukraine uh, launched uh, drone strikes. We were just talking about this. If it's true that they launched uh, a couple drone strikes uh, at Vladimir Putin's residence trying to take him out specifically, and if it's true that they, <clears throat> Russia, that is, intends to retaliate, uh, uh, then this thing's about to get uh, worse than, than what we've already seen. It, it would, and I should say that I have not... Um 
this has not been the subject of my reporting, so right. I don't know, you know, I, I haven't verified this. I will say that while Russia has made this claim, I do know that the Ukrainian president has denied it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, just as, you know, we've heard of potential, I think there's been some misreporting in the past, for example, when, you know, there was a claim, for example, that um, missiles had reached a NATO country, um, and that even like rumors of that have escalated the conflict, right? Or potentially could escalate it and transform it dramatically. Um, so I don't know the veracity of it, but even sure. if it were not true, like the discussion of it um, can certainly be used to uh, exacerbate the conflict. And I will also say that um, there's a great film. Uh, it's a PBS frontline film. About, I think it was from, from many years ago. So it was before the, the most recent conflict. I think it was called Putin's War, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And in it, like, they do trace his rise to power. And, and there was something so interesting that has always stayed with me, was that they look back at um, a terrorist attack in his country, that there's a great deal of evidence to show that it was something that was, um, the blame was pinned on groups, like insurgent groups. But it was used as a means to uh, build support for ambitions that he had, mm-hmm. right? And there's a, and this is something that it's, I, I say this only to bring up, and this is used by many in war. He's not alone in this sure. um, sort of a concept. But like, there are so many things that can be used to rile populations to build support for wars. We've seen that ourselves here yep. in the United States, sure. um, and so it's worth thinking about in the context oh. of this. This current conflict. I, I agree. These kinds of stories um, uh, can be exploited uh, to all kinds of, uh, to serve rather, all kinds of ends and aims. I take your point uh, loud and clear. In our remaining moments, we get uh, two quick comments about the future of U.S. foreign policy and, and the intersection of race and war. From Osmot Khan, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I got just three minutes left in this conversation, Osmot. Let me put two questions together and you, give you the mic for the last few minutes here. Um, the intersection of race and war, how would you define that? And what do you see as the future of U.S. foreign policy? <laughs> Those are two very big yeah, questions I know. for three minutes. I know, but, I know, I know. Um, I will do my best. Um, the intersection of race and war. I think often about the value of human life and how we value human lives. And you can see that in something that often comes up in my reporting, which is, payments for civilian casualties. You know, what we pay those we harm or the loved ones of those we've killed who are civilians. And something that has always stood out to me is that Iraqis, Syrians, Yemenis, like what the United States pays them, oftentimes the amount is capped at $2,000 for the loss of a human life. Mm. And at the same time, I've uncovered payments, for example, to the family of an Italian man or, you know, other nationalities where they've been as high as a million dollars. And what does that tell us about how we value human life of different races or backgrounds and countries, whether we identify with them or can relate to them? At the same time, I also look at really incredible historical reporting um, of service members, you know, and the history of black service members and where they were sent in wars when they were involved and what costs they paid and, you know, things like Agent Orange and, and it, the intersection of race and war, you can find so many examples of it sure. and it can be extremely disturbing. And so 
you know, it's not lost on me that there, there is always that component to this. Even in the simple, the simplest of questions, how yeah. do we value human life? I think it's essential to that. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the future of U.S. foreign policy, well, I don't, you know, I think that we're in a different stage, and we've seen this over time. So if you look at the draft, for example, which elicited anti-war movements, right? We adjusted after Vietnam, right? We mm-hmm. eliminated the draft. We started recruiting particular populations and demographics into the United States military to kind of fill that void. And that allowed us to adapt, right, and not have such widespread anti-war movements. And similarly, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as a war-weary public was asking questions, we also adapted, right, to now move towards lowering the human cost in ourselves by engaging in more remote warfare where possible or, you know, more Americans die by suicide in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in the wars in Iraq and Syria, the recent ones there, than in hostile death, mm-hmm. right? Like we've dramatically lowered yeah. that. We've adapted, yeah. right? But we're still continuing it. And so the, the, I continue to see the, these kinds of adaptations coming where the most controversial elements, the elements that cause Americans to engage in public debates, mm-hmm. we're going to see that diminished. And yet at the same time, we'll see American involvement continue. Yeah. We close uh, where we uh, essentially began with this uh, Douglas um, uh, frame, mm-hmm. uh, inside this Douglas frame, Frederick Douglas frame, that uh, you have to be willing to interrogate your country. You have to be willing to rebuke your country uh, and not forgive its sins when it's on the wrong track. And so every night again, it, uh, it, it it's worth spending a few minutes uh, on this program and on this station talking about the way we are viewed or not uh, vis-a-vis foreign policy around the globe. And to have done that today, we were pleased to have been joined by uh, Asma Khan, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter. Uh, Asma, thank you for your work and witness down through the years, and thank you for this hour. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you for your excellent questions. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for answering those uh, those excellent questions, as you put it. I thank you.